Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well then, let's turn back to... Psalm 123, which we're going to focus our attention on this evening. If you're not familiar with it, uh, having read it and having sung it and about to hear an exposition of it by the end of the evening, you should, I think, have some familiarity with it and I hope a deeper love for it. Well, I wonder how many of you were glued to your computer screen uh, or uh, perhaps if you're in the category of owning a smart television, watching the television a couple of Wednesday nights ago, I think it was, when David was preaching at the Keswick Convention, convention in the Lake District that has been going on now for, I guess, way over 150 years, um, gathering place uh, around the lakes and the mountains for the people of God. And at one time, undoubtedly, uh, it was the only gathering of its size and nature uh, in the United Kingdom. And I'm pretty sure that Uh, David met people who said, I have been here every year since uh, 1863 or 1952. Because in that gathering, people have found themselves, in a sense, drawn away from their day-to-day struggles and pressures. They've given themselves to a whole week of listening to the exposition of God's Word to fellowship together, unless they're one of the speakers or the speaker's wives, to relaxation and the reduction of tension and to the joys of worship and being wonderfully blessed. So I think I can understand why people go year after year. But watching David made me reflect on a couple of things, one of which was re-emphasized to me a week later when I was rustling through some boxes of old books, and I came across a hymn book entitled Keswick Praise. And it reminded me that there are at least two differences between the Keswick Convention now and the Keswick Convention with which I first became acquainted about 40-odd years ago. One is that they used to have a hymn book. And they used to sing more or less the same hymns year after year after year. Because they thought that in this hymn book there were songs appropriate to the kind of experience God's people would have when they gave themselves over this prolonged time to meeting together and to receiving blessing and ministry together. The other thing that struck me as being different is that in ye old days, there used to be two preachers in the evening, not one. 
Younger men are obviously a lot more long-winded than older men were in those days. And instead of there being a section of Scripture to expound, there were very definite themes to be preached on each evening. If I remember rightly, Monday night it was sin, Tuesday night it was repentance, Wednesday night it was pardon, Thursday night it was fullness, and Friday night it was service or something after that order because the organizers had come to the conviction that there was a kind of pattern of spiritual experience that people would go through. Sometimes it was rather muddle-headed and it's as well perhaps that they got rid of it because there were people coming, I remember, to uh, John Stott on one occasion saying they had lost the Keswick blessing. And John Stott was wise enough to say, well, if you could take me to the place where you last knew you had it, maybe we could find it again. And so it could be it could be very confining and actually it could be very confusing if you went home without the Keswick blessing. But I think we can all understand these two principles that when God's people gather, there are similar experiences that they share. And I think we can also understand that somewhere somebody might think it would be good if we gathered together hymns that were suitable to these occasions. Now, why this boring Sunday evening lecture on the history of the Keswick Convention? Simply to say that Psalm 123, which we've read and sung, belongs to a part of the Psalter that seems to have been a special hymn book for special occasions. One of the markers of that is that every single one of these psalms in succession all has the same notation at the beginning, a song of ascents. And certainly at some point, as God's people gathered for spiritual convention, for spiritual conferences in Jerusalem, which God had ordained they would do on a regular basis, it seems as though these psalms were then set in order of appropriateness to the experience of these pilgrims. So if we think of the end of Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is taken up to the feast by Joseph and Mary, I think there can be very little doubt that on the way they would have sung these hymns and they would have sung them together in Jerusalem. And you can see the order of that. Psalm 120 begins where you are at. And the psalmist is in a very difficult situation, far away from Jerusalem, and he's calling out in distress to the Lord. He sojourns in Meshech, dwells among the tents of Kedar, and he is among those who hate peace, whereas he is for peace. And then it's almost as though he begins the pilgrimage in Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills, place that for these people was full of danger. Long pilgrimage. Where is my help going to come from? And there is this antiphonal voice of, of someone who has been to the convention before, who gives him reassurance. He will not let your foot be moved. 
He who keeps you will not slumber. And then you've arrived in Psalm 122 and you're beginning to experiencing the joys and blessings of being in fellowship with God's people, hearing his praises sung. And you say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then in our psalm this evening, it looks as though he's hit a bump in the road. And there's a very different atmosphere about it. Actually, the atmosphere seems almost to be back at Psalm 120. And if you read through all of these 15 psalms, you'll see, I think, that whoever put them together had great wisdom because every so often it's like one of these side streets in Aberdeen that's got a road bump. And every three psalms or so, you find that the psalmist is back in the struggles, back in the difficulties, back under the pressures. And there's something about this that is marvelously healthy for us. That the, the Christian life is, is not a straight line trajectory, always rising higher and higher in which our happiness increases and we feel nothing but blessing abounds. But that the joys of being in the company of God's people do not make us lose sight of the challenges that face us when we are living the life of faith in the world. And so, although there is a beginning and there is an ending, the beginning in Psalm 20 is one of a, a pressurized situation. The ending in Psalm 134 is of the pilgrim, as it were, waving goodbye to those who have ministered to him and asking God to bless them the way he has been blessed. But all the while, the Christian life is a life of blessings and battles, blessings and buffetings, joys and sorrows, triumphs and opposition. And that's what he's speaking about here in Psalm 123. And it's one of those Psalms that we read forwards from verse 1 to the end of verse 4. But we understand it backwards. There are a number of Psalms like this. That the order of our reading brings us to the place where we begin to understand the order of the psalmist's experience. And so if you'll allow me, and to tell the truth, even if you won't allow me unless you manhandle me out of the place, I want to look at this psalm in that reverse order. Because when we do so, it's not only illuminating for us, but I think it shows us why this psalm is so tremendously encouraging. He uses the word, you'll notice, eyes frequently. Eyes looking. Eyes looking. And in the course of these verses, his eyes are focused in three different directions. So that's, we want to look at the psalm through his eyes and to follow him as he looks in three different directions. First of all, in verse 4, he looks in an inward direction to 
the stress he feels in his situation. And as I say, this may remind us of Psalm 120, but it's a little different from Psalm 120 in this sense. In Psalm 120, he describes the pressures that are there on him, as it were, from the outside, objectively. We're living in this place. I'm for peace. They are against peace. But what he describes here is subjective, not objective. What he describes here is what that leads him to experience. And what it leads him to experience, you'll notice, in verse 3, is the contempt of the proud. And in verse 4, the scorn of those who are at ease. He experiences the the painful reality of feeling people are looking down on you out of the self-sufficiency, out of the self-assurance of their own lives. And they are treating you with contempt. They look down their noses at you. You are nothing. You are insignificant. You are way in the minority. And in addition to that, he is experiencing the pain of being scorned. There is this contempt that comes from pride and there is this scorn that comes from a sense that we belong to the people of power. Actually, this psalm is going to miniature version of a much longer description of a similar experience in Psalm 73. And it reminds me of a book I read many years ago by a very famous German uh, theologian called Friedrich Schleiermacher, entitled On Religion, Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers. It was a great title. Not such a great book, but it was a great title. And it was addressing the academy. Uh, it was addressing uh, academic intellectuals who intellectually despised the Christian faith. Not that they would have been able to articulate it accurately, but they despised it as uh, under the Roman Empire, the gospel was despised by the emperors following a crucified Savior indeed. Um, you remember probably you have seen that piece of graffito uh, of uh, an ancient Roman bowing down before the crucified Christ only. He has the head of a donkey. And it's our world for Christians. Not for all Christians in all places. Not for all Christians in every time. But certainly for some Christians. And it's no longer just in uh, academia that there are the cultured despisers. The most influential cultured despisers are in the media. And they exist in plenty. And people follow the media and unintelligently repeat what the media says. And 
the gospel we love, the Savior we love, the God we love, well, we're in the same position, many of us, as this psalmist. I happened to come across an article in the Times this week. Don't read the Times every day. I happened to read it on Friday the 5th of August. Came across this headline, and I am sorry that it touches on an area that we touched on this morning. Toxvig lambasts Welby. Now, you may not know who either of these people are. Welby is Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Toxvig, who is a television personality, and who this article, I knew nothing about her. I've seen her face as I've flashed through the channels in some kind of program with very smart people who are very articulate. Toxvig, 64. Why do they always put the age of women in? who hosts QI on the BBC, is married to Debbie Toxvig, a psychotherapist. Their civil partnership conducted in 2007 was converted into a marriage in 2014. So that locates Sandy Toxvig. But here is what Sandy Toxvig is upset about. She contrasts loving priests who back same-sex marriage with those who sit, quotes, at the bigots' table. Justin Welby apparently has just said again that the Church of England does not support same-sex marriage, of its priests at least. And so by definition he is a bigot. And he sits at the bigots' table. And uh, she goes on to say that she would like to have a chat with him to persuade him that he's made a horrible mistake. Little boy, sit down. You made a horrible mistake. Go to the bottom of the class. And so she added, now I don't believe everything I read in the newspapers, but the Times should at least have some authenticity. She said it was a sin in 1998, according to the Church of England, and you just wanted to make clear in 2022 that no one in your finely frocked gang has moved on from that. And it goes on in the same way. And then it climaxes in this. Now, it seems to me that that, what I've just read, fits into this notion of power and contempt. That's certainly language of contempt. But then there's also the language of power and scorn. And it comes like this. Oh, Justin, how can... Let me read the whole paragraph. She added, Jesus doesn't mention sexuality at all. And asked, oh, Justin, how can you be so stuck? You silly little man. You profess to believe the Bible. Don't you know that Jesus never said anything about these things? Don't you know that? Now just in parenthesis, because this is not the first time I've heard this. Jesus makes it crystal clear that as it was in the beginning, it should ever be that God has made man as his image, male and female, and that a man leaves his parents and clings to his wife, 
and they become one flesh. That's a statement that includes both gender and sex. And if that were not enough, unless I am more ignorant than Justin Welby, I think if I'd actually read beyond saying, I love the Sermon on the Mount, I just can't stand the Apostle Paul, I would have found the Lord Jesus saying, mark my words, God's law will not pass away till all is fulfilled. And God's law, incidentally, is full of comments on sex. So, all that to say, let us not be intimidated by this kind of speech. But the real point I want to make is how intimidating it actually is. How intimidating it is to somebody who might look up their, their phone or their concordance at home and discover that the word sex doesn't come out of Jesus' mouth. Oh, perhaps she's right. She's so clever. She's so smart. So media conscious. So savvy. And so in this sense, and it will not go away for some time, the people of God find themselves in precisely the same situation as the psalmist. And he says, Lord, to be absolutely honest, I've had enough of it. And I don't know if I can go on. And you see, that's the tactic, isn't it? Exhaust them. Actually, the language he uses <laughs> reminds me of what I used to do, if you will forgive a personal illustration, when I was a little boy in the bath. Those were days when you had one bath every week. <laughs> Friday night, in my case. And we had this wonderful soft sponge. And when I was a little boy, I used to love plunging the sponge into the water and then just lifting up the sponge and watching the water drip out because it was so absolutely saturated with it. That's actually the language he uses here. And it's, it's a man who, in the, interestingly, in the blessings that he's experiencing by being with the people of God, has become very, very sensitive to the reality that he faces outside of that community. And he's turning to the Lord and he's saying to the Lord, Lord, I've had more than enough of this contempt. I've had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease and of the contempt of the proud. So he's looking inward to the stress of the situation. But here's the important thing, and if you've got nothing else from this exposition but this, that's where he finds himself, but that's not where he leaves himself. That's where he finds himself, but it's not where he leaves himself. You see, one of the, one of the struggles that we have when we're in this position where we say, Lord, I've, I, I just had, I've, I've had... I've had more than I can cope with is that we listen to our own voice and we keep looking within when the resources for coping are not to be found in that sense within. So what does he do? Well, remember, the psalm we read forwards, the logic of the psalm 
goes backwards. This is what he does, and we find this in verses earlier on in verse 3, but also at the end of verse 2. And I think I want to put it like this, that having focused his eyes inwardly on the stress of his situation, he now looks backward to divine revelation. Now, that's a nice heading because it rhymes with the first heading. And you may think, but he doesn't say anything about revelation. Hold on a minute. What's he doing? Well, you see what he's doing. He's saying, our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. And then again in verse 3, have mercy upon us, O Lord. And then again, have mercy upon us because this is our situation. Now, you probably know there are various different words in the Bible that can be translated mercy or grace or favor. And they all present to us different nuances of the grace and graciousness of God. I mean, they're as, they're as varied as people going into Starbucks and apparently just ordering a cup of coffee, but there are all these kind of little variations. And the sense that he's using it here, the sense of God's grace, of God's mercy, is really the sense that we find it used in the at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you remember how this, this wise character challenges Jesus. So, so what are the great commandments? Well, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And you remember how Jesus turns that back on him. And at the end, he doesn't say, that's who your neighbor is. He says, who, pro- who in this story proved to be the neighbor? And uh, the clever fellow, he gets it right. Well, he would be stupid if he didn't get it right. He says, the one who showed him mercy wasn't the one who showed him pardoning grace because this isn't about the man's sin. This is about the fact that the man has been beaten down by others. He has been oppressed. People have treated him with contempt. And then the Samaritan has come along and he has both rescued him and restored him. He stabilized him. Um, it's almost, it's almost as though he says to the innkeeper, look, um, I think that's enough money for you to look after him until he's stable. I mean, maybe he was a good Samaritan doctor and he used that kind of language. Is the patient stable yet? And, and if it's going to take longer, I'll come back and I'll give you more. But it's this marvelous idea of this man coming to the rescue of one who has been beaten down and providing for him so that he can be stabilized. And that's what he's asking for. So why do I say not he's looking to God for mercy? Why do I say his eyes are looking backwards to God's revelation? For these reasons, first of all, because this is what God has promised to be merciful. Remember when Moses asks to see the face and glory of God, 
God says to him, you can't see my face and live. But what you need to know is that I am the Lord who is gracious and merciful. That's who I am. And so you see what he's beginning to do when he, when he prays for mercy. He's looking to the very character of God and he's saying, God, you are one who in your very nature is merciful to those who are broken down and oppressed. Be merciful to me. And it's not just that he's looking to the Lord because the Lord has said he is merciful. It's because the Lord has promised to give mercy. Did you receive the benediction this morning? Remember what it was? Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you. Lord, be gracious to you. That's the same language. It's not just that he is. It's that he specifically promised to be this to his people. And it's interesting. We never notice, I suppose, the words that follow because they're not part of the pronouncing of the benediction at the end of the service. But the words that follow are these. The command to the priest who was to give the benediction was... In this way, God says, you will put my name on them. You know what's really interesting? This is really interesting to me. There are at least 50 names in the Old Testament, at least 50 names in the Old Testament that give expression to the very language that the psalmist is using here. If your name's Hannah or Anna or John, that's the word. There are 50 of these names. Presumably parents who had taken hold of this covenant benediction of God and this command of God, put my name on them and taken it, perhaps over literally. Like one of these Puritan names, praise God, bare bones. Or seaborn mother. God's mercy, Ferguson. That would be a name to conjure with. And you see, this is, this is what the psalmist is learning to do. He's learning to look backwards and to allow the revelation of God's character and the revelation of God's promised blessing to draw him out of his own sense. I don't have the resources for this. And into the resources that God has promised to share with his people. He looks inward, but he doesn't allow his eyes to look inward permanently. And you'll notice something very interesting here. It's at the end of verse 2. He says, our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy upon us. In other words, we do not know how or when he will show mercy to us in our personal or corporate situation. What we do know is that he will. And so we sing about waiting for him. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. 
I mean, what this must have mean, meant to Nehemiah and God's people in Nehemiah's day when they were experiencing the very same thing wonderfully expressed in the experience of the prophet Habakkuk. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not save? Destruction and violence, strife and contention are around me. And God says to him, if the vision tarries, wait for it. And we find him at the end of the psalm saying, even though the fig tree does not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation because God the Lord is my strength. He stabilizes me. But then as we move backwards and hurry on to the opening words, we find this man who had been looking, first of all, inwards to the stress of his situation and then backwards to the marvelous promises of God's revelation. He now looks upwards to the God he knows is sovereign. And this is how he puts it, to you. You see, at the, at the end, where he is, it's to me, but now to you I lift up my eyes. O oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Incidentally, this has happened before in history, and it will happen again. And he's always been enthroned in the heavens. And then he puts it so beautifully as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master and the eyes of maid servant to the hand of her mistress. So our eyes look to the Lord our God. So our eyes look to the Lord our God. And you know that this, this idea of the hand is, is full of significance. He opens his hand and satisfies every living creature. He gives provision. He, he lays bare his right hand and his holy arm, and he gives his people protection. And especially in this world, the one who was enthroned, it was from this hand that he gave direction. I remember um, a long time ago having a, being at a dinner in the presence of a great personage who will remain anonymous to preserve the guilty. And uh, I noticed at uh, a point in the meal that the great personage had picked up the fork and was doing that with the fork. And I thought, that is the oddest thing. But then, 15 minutes later, I noticed the fork had been picked up again and the fork was wagging again. And I'm kind of slow with these things, but I noticed it happened another 15 minutes later on. And then it dawned on me. This was the signal to the servants that it was time for the next course to be brought on. We didn't do that kind of thing in the house I was brought up in. And I thought, Psalm 123. 
It's God's people looking to God's hand for direction and waiting on Him. Standing waiting. Far easier to be up and at them. But to stand, to wait, to listen to what God the Lord has promised to us. That's, that's what He's talking about here. And you see, that's, that's when He has been really stabilized. Because he's able to stand in the midst of all this and keep his eyes fixed on the Lord until the Lord's fork begins to waggle and history begins to change again. I sometimes think there are passages in the Old Testament that are like, like the old negatives of photographs of which some of you know nothing. But you would... You, you would take a picture, you would send something away, some mysterious place. They would send back these negatives, and then they would also send back the, the, the full-color picture that had been taken from this negative. And sometimes there are, there are pictures of God in the Old Testament that are, that are like these negatives. You, you hold them up to the light, and, and you, you see what the picture is. But then you look at the photograph and you see yourself in all your beauty and glory in full color. And there are places in the New Testament, aren't there, where you see this psalm, the negative, in the full glorious color picture. And one of them, of course, is in the closing book of the Bible. Here is John the Apostle. He's exiled in Patmos. The powerful ones have demeaned him. They despise him. They despise his Savior. And they treat him as garbage. And there he has this full-color picture. There must have been moments when inwardly he was crying out, Oh God, how long is this going to go on? And times when he held on to the promises he'd heard from the lips of Jesus. And then that Lord's Day when he had this amazing vision of being in the throne room of God and there was the God of heaven and earth seated on the throne and standing in the midst of the throne was the lion of the tribe of Judah who had conquered. And when he looked, he saw that the lion of the tribe of Judah was standing there as a lamb who had been slain. And I wonder if this dawned on him. And you find this hinted at in the Gospels. That just as these pilgrims had gone to Jerusalem, in a sense, to find relief from the scorn, the Lord Jesus had gone to Jerusalem to take that scorn upon himself. Despised and rejected of men, as Isaiah foresaw. We esteemed him not, stricken, smitten, cast out, crucified, but bearing it all for us. And you know, if there's one thing we can learn from this, I think especially when we are younger, it's this. That all this stuff and all that goes with it in the demeaning of our faith and the demeaning of our persons. Now, some of us are guarded sometimes 
for example, in school by our ability at school. So people need to be a little careful. Or by our sporting ability. So we bring honor and so they need to be a little careful. Many of us are not in that situation. We, we feel the, the weight of it. What a blessing it is to be able to say when that happens, Lord Jesus, I see this isn't really about me. My eyes are fixed on you. This is about you. And you have borne it. And that means two things. You understand. And so I'm going to keep looking to you. And you take it away. Because ultimately it's about you. Ultimately this is about hatred of the Lord Jesus. And it's not about me. So I'm stabilized. So three directions to look in our Christian life. Focusing on Jesus Christ. Yes, we look inwardly, but we don't allow ourselves to keep our eyes fixated inwardly. We look to the teaching of God's Word that stabilizes us. And we look to the Lord Jesus who comforts us, strengthens us, carries us through. And it's the end of today's convention, almost. We get it every single week. And tomorrow, back to this. But back to this with our eyes fixed on Him.